Hey, Jeff Johnson here with the Living Undeterred Podcast. And today from Singapore, it is 4.30 in the morning. And um, this is normal for Nick Johnson. Uh, he seems to, to thrive getting up in the morning and getting his stuff done. And uh, I'm super excited for this. Nick reached out to me, like a lot of our guests do, um, kind of researched each other. We had a little bit of a pre-interview, hit it off great, really admire his journey. Uh, Nick, welcome to the Living Unitured Podcast. I know we're going to have a lot to talk about this morning, uh, and good morning to you. Yes, thank you so much, Jeff, for inviting me. It's great to be here. Yeah, you have quite the uh, interesting uh, biography um, from, you know, a, a top-notch executive to, you know, a struggle with alcoholism and loneliness, which uh, seems to be where you've kind of fallen into your niche now, talking about executive loneliness, which is coincidentally the title of your book. Um, and you're also an endurance athlete on top of that. Um, do you see a lot of your passions right now coming from the fact that you were in the abyss at one point with the grips of addiction? And so you feel really, you know, focused and polarized to be active in other areas. Um, is that is that kind of what pulled you into those areas? Yeah, certainly, Jeff. I think it's a gift I've gotten here. You know, it's almost like a second go at life and I screwed it up the first time. And this time it all comes natural to me. I'm just being myself, you know, rather than trying to put on what I call in my book, uh, you know, that facade and you're hiding behind a smiling depression. It's just so nice to just be able to be yourself. And it, and allowing yourself to be yourself and you know the, the most people accept you for that and the ones who don't well it doesn't really matter so we all have the benefit of hindsight so looking back on your life the the early high flying high compensated executive life um what happened well i think for myself and like many others as i interviewed them for my book i realized that i'm I'm not special. There's many more who are the same. It seems like, you know, that as we're going, growing up, you know, and it starts already in school, it's very competitive. We get grades and we get scholarships and, you know, you get awards and recognitions for being top of the class. And I was chasing that. Uh, I didn't do that in the young years, Jeff. I, I couldn't even finish my high school as a child. I had to come back to that as 20, 21 years old to come back to high school to finish my grades. And, hmm. But later on then, once I did that and I was in university, I wanted to chase the scholarships. I wanted to top the classes. I loved the recognition. And that's what I brought with me into the workplace. When I started as a young account executive in an American advertising company in Bangkok in 2014, there was only one thing I was looking at. I wanted the top. There was nothing. In, mm -hmm. I was going to do anything it took to reach the top. I didn't reach right. the top in that company, but I elbowed my way up through the way until I was there. So have you always been a competitive person your whole life? No, it kicked in. I, I would say I wasn't as a child growing up, but it was uh, that was almost, uh, you know, because I didn't pass my my high school the first time. Once I came back and did it second time, I felt I need to have a go at this. And that's when I... It never crossed my mind that I would go to university as a as a young uh, person. It was when I was 23 years old. I was mature enough to go into university. Hmm. And that's when I really, really, really decided I'm going to give this my best shot. 
What'd you, uh, what'd you major in or what'd you study in college? Uh, I studied a bachelor in business, uh, marketing, advertising, and then I did a master of public relations. And then you get into the corporate life. And so how was that? Making a lot of money early, loving life, traveling, living the high life. And then, uh, then what happened? Well, working then in Bangkok for an American advertising company on some big accounts, you know, uh, I was the perfect account director uh, looking after the clients. They would fly in from the US, you know, there will be new clients almost every night. And uh, while I'm an introvert, uh, once you give me some alcohol, I was the perfect host. I would right. take them out, show them a good time, dinners, parties, and you know, and I would make good relationships. I would get the amounts going up so the of course, my bosses were happy, right? They could see I could bring in the money and the clients were happy. They kept coming back, giving me more business. So I thought, you know, I had a perfect life and I climbed up because as a, as a result of this. And that's how I was working in various industries for many years in Asia, first starting in advertising, but then it was in fashion. I was even at one stage, uh, the medical uh, services uh, general manager of a business in Indonesia running more than 70 hospitals and clinics. And again, the most of the clients were actually American clients. It was then the oil and gas companies. It was uh, uh, the mining companies. Mm -hmm. I was uh, managing Freeport, which is the biggest mine in the world. Hmm. And your drinking was, you know, I, I looked at myself too, and I, I didn't really realize I had a drinking problem until late, like, you know, in my fifties, almost, I knew I was drinking too much, but I was what it was called a functional alcoholic. In other words, never missed work. I didn't always feel the best. Um, but I could drink with the best of them and seem to be productive the next day. Um, were you, were you that same type of person? Yeah. So for many years I had, it didn't cross my mind, you know, that I had a drinking problem looking back at it and thinking about it. It, I had probably my first stint of, uh, uh, you know, really suffering from alcohol in 2005. I was hospitalized. I remember it was a Monday morning. I had a big weekend and I was hospitalized. The doctors then did a lot of blood tests and they came back with, you know, you have high blood pressure, you know, and you have hypertension. Mm. Maybe you're not eating right and so on. And I, I was in complete denial. I mean, the alcohol was the most fun of my life. Why would that be the, the mm. cause, you know? And so, but I didn't realize that at the time. And after that scare, you know, a couple of days, I was back into, into the same rhythm and drinking, but it was around 2010, 2011, I realized that, you know, I had gained too much weight and needed to cut down mm -hmm. on, 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 uh, on, on the food and the calories. Mm -hmm. And with that, I started to think maybe I need to reduce my alcohol. So at least the thinking came in that I need to reduce it. I need to control it. And with that, I signed up for some, that's how my exercise journey started, signed up for some 10 kilometer runs. And what I then did was that I took a few days or maybe one week of alcohol leading up to these races because I wanted to be in a good form for them and so on. And I realized that I was feeling better and I performed better. And that's how I then for the next couple of years, I was mixing sport with alcohol and I was taking time off. But as I realized then, was that it was getting harder and harder to get those blocks of non-drinking. I remember one time, particularly leading mm. up to Christmas, when I decided to take three weeks off and I was suffering. I did it, but I was suffering. Hmm. Yeah. So your body was telling you that, you know, you were pretty dependent on this. Absolutely. And in 2015, 
uh, I was already on my way down. Uh, and I remember going to Australia for a full distance Ironman event uh, uh, in Melbourne to compete. And normally I would take two, three weeks without alcohol leading up to the race. This time I only took two or max three days. And in the swim then, which mm. is a 2.4 mile ocean swim, uh, I was cramping so badly in my legs. Uh, my body was not ready for this uh, kind of endurance race that I thought I was going to drown. It was very, very scary. Uh, I, and I will never forget that. But, you know, what was the first thing I did at the finish line? It was, of course, you know, to drink myself uh, almost unconscious. Hmm. And your story resonates with so many people in so many different ways. You know, I, I went to the same corporate ladder, you know, to me, it was only one way and that was the top, you know, and um, I didn't care really how I got there. I worked hard, like I'm sure you did, um, did everything by the book. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, you know, break rules and stuff like that. But, um, you know, after a hard day work, I needed to unwind, you know, and I, I really wasn't into the gym. I wasn't a gym guy. I was past the age of being able to play basketball competitively. Um, and so it was easy just to go to the bar. And then as I got older and got married, drinking just got to my house. You know, I would just come home, lock up, put my sweats on, crack open a bottle of Cabernet, put on a movie. And next thing I know, I'm stumbling upstairs at midnight, you know, and I look back and there's like two empty bottles. And I'm like, what the heck? You know, why, why, why am I doing this? And then it took a really tough life moment, impersonal life moment for me to realize that I had to quit. And so for me, it was pretty easy to quit. Do you, was it easy for you to quit or have you quit and kind of fallen off a couple times and got back on the horse and then fallen off again? Or for you, has it been not that difficult to not drink? Um, so I, as I mentioned, I started to getting some issues with it in 2015. And then I, with that, I resigned from my well-paid job. I moved country, I divorced my wife. So everything in my life got thrown up in the air. And I thought, well, mm -hmm. I deserve something better. I thought I deserve a, a better job, a better wife. I thought everything, you know, I became basically, uh, you know, overconfident, uh, perhaps delusional. Uh, with that, then mm -hmm. I, 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 I went out to try to find a new wife, something that was good enough for me. Uh, you know, I, I looked at everyone else as default, not at myself. I also thought I deserved mm -hmm. to have more fun. I'd been worked too hard for many years. So 2016, 2017, I was just drinking, having fun, jumping from job, job to job. And I did remarry. But in 2018, then I, I became a, a, even a day drinker. I needed to have that drink in the morning to stabilize myself or Valium or something. Mm. Uh, because I had met someone who became my new wife and we had great times in the evening went out partying but it was just too hard for me i couldn't do it anymore so the only way was then to have that stabilizing drink the next morning and that's when i realized that this has really become a problem i wanted to do something about it but i was too scared i was too scared to get professional help and everything i kept it secret and my new wife thought that i was having a good time everyone around me thought nick is just having a good time he deserved this he'd been working too hard you know and and so on. So people tend to defend you, especially my friends who are drinking. And mm. so, mm -hmm. so, so no, I, I, it was very much at the last stage, I realized this is becoming a problem. And, and I, I only addressed it after I was so sick that I actually had already written my will and my testament. And I thought that I, oh. I could, I thought that I couldn't stop. 
So for you, it, it, it was life or death for you, right? It certainly was, uh, Jeff. I remember back in April 2018, I was lying in my bed, you know, and uh, remember my heart was rushing and pumping. I thought I was going to die. It was the morning after. I was so shaky that I could hardly make it out of the bed to go and get a drink. There was no alcohol in the house, so I would have to go out to a, a supermarket and buy some drinks. And I remembered that I cannot even walk there. I'm too sick. And that's when, you know, I, I thought everything was over. But at that moment, I decided to tell my new wife, we were married for three weeks, uh, how I was feeling internally. And that was my lifesaver mm -hmm. because she immediately grabbed me we, and, and went to see a doctor. Uh, we then, after the doctor, went to see a friend who had uh, had some alcohol problems a few years earlier. She linked me up with an anonymous community. Uh, where I was introduced. Uh, so very, very quickly, support was on the way. And I was not really ready, but I knew it was there. Uh, I, I had to go out and drink another week uh, until I hit absolute rock bottom and I was hospitalized. And from there, I haven't had a drink as of now, and it's four and a half years ago. Yeah, I'm coming up on uh, five um, next couple of weeks. So you and I are about on the same same path, brother. Um, you know, when I first met you, I asked you a pretty straight question. I said, is there anything off limits on our podcast recording? You said no. And I went back and looked at, you know, I started reading your book, by the way. Um, I have like four or five I'm reading simultaneously, so be patient with me. Um, but in your introduction, you almost apologized to your wife and to your son. Um, did you feel the need that you had to you had to do that to almost apologize to them, or was that actually an apology? Yeah, I think you know we, we need to go back and clean up the mess we've done. And as I said at the stage when I, it's very vulnerable of you, by the way, very vulnerable. And I, I think uh, mm. I think your readers and your followers really admire the fact that you're kind of leaning into the mistakes you made in the past and you're kind of manning up to them. Yeah, and I think it's very important. I mean. Uh, uh, as I'm sure you know, also in recovery, we clean up our past. And then when as we live, we clean up every day by day and before we move forward to the next so we can sleep at night because I needed alcohol to sleep at night before. And I don't need that anymore. I mean, I, we, we can mm -hmm. still make mistakes. We're still humans and we can still step on people's toes. The egos can run mm -hmm. at full speed sometimes, but we catch ourselves. We remind ourselves, hey, that I was not my best self there. And we, and we fix it right away. How important is peer-to-peer um, -peer for you right now in recovery, um, being able to talk to other, other, I assume your groups are men and women both, or is it mostly men? Yeah, so the business I'm running now in Singapore, Indonesia, and Malaysia is basically confidential peer groups for either for senior executives, so that for the executives, we have groups right. for them, or we have groups for the business owners, entrepreneurs. And what we do there is really that it's a safe place for them to come in where they sign the non-disclosure, no competitors. We have a moderator mm. and they don't discuss necessarily the mental health issues or addiction issues. Right. But they do discuss the, the work-related issues they have. And of course, many times that's relationships. It is a conflict with a boss, conflict with a team, uh, an organization shot that is working in one country is not working in another. And they're getting the support. That means that, you know, they have this trusted peer network where they can discuss and solve it before it comes an issue. I didn't have that, Jeff, when my work, it was only hitting the targets and meet my own way, just forward, up, 
without thinking and owning up to any of my mistakes and sorting it out. Now, you, you're in a group, uh, I think it's the Samaritans of Singapore, SOS. Is that, um, is that safe to say that's similar to Alcoholics Anonymous or is that a different type of a mindset? It's a different organization. And, and what happened then, Jeff, as I started my recovery journey in 2018, and I was doing really well, my first year uh, was amazing. Uh, after a few months, when I tapered off the drugs, the alcohol, I was feeling great. But what happened then a year later was that a friend of mine died of suicide. And it was very, very Simon, mm. uh, uh, very sudden, my friend Simon went and everyone was puzzled, surprised what happened he had just uh, been to mount everest he went up to the base camp there he had posted uh, images on social media that with his new girlfriend he'd never been happier and he seemed to have it all together and i was working on a project with him at that time uh, which was very exciting and he had just started taking speaking lessons he was going to become a keynote speaker so everyone was just mm. looking at simon as someone who had it together so when he went and so suddenly, I uh, remember that I called up his brother and I asked, can I talk about this? Can I help? Can I make any, any effort? And uh, his brother said, shout it out loud. That's what Simon would have wanted you to do. And when he said that, mm -hmm. you know, I started to cry. And I realized that looking back at my own journey, that it could have been me unless I had uh, gotten the support and the help. And I immediately then called up the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to set up a special fund for you. And it was a, a race to an end of executive loneliness. So that was the whole start and the journey. I made a video uh, immediately uh, as a part of this that I posted on LinkedIn. And it went completely viral all around the world. People wrote in support, starting donations. And people said, Nick, thank you so much for talking about this. This is not something that is normally spoken about in the work world. So that's how it all started. Yeah, you know, it's um, in a lot of areas of, of our society, it's not spoken. I'd say the work world, but just um, let's say men, men in general have a hard time talking about these things. Men have a very difficult time in showing their emotions. And I think, you know, in in being vulnerable, there's something in there. There's something people that when you crack that door, Nick, and, and someone says, well, what do you do for a living? And, and you start answering that question like I do it's tempting to get really deep immediately for me because I'm comfortable, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable talking about my life very quickly with strangers. And you seem to be that way too. Um, but I think it helps, it helps not only the person like us that's sharing the story, but the person that is listening is now feel like, you know, it's okay. It's okay for me to take that lead. You know, Jeff talked about his son. Now it's okay for me to talk about my issues. And I think vulnerabilities are great. And that's why peer-to-peer -peer recovery centers work well, because you're with other people that are in this, literally the same boat and you can really relate to what they're going through and they can relate to what you're going through. And that's how you help each other. Yeah, absolutely. And to answer your question, is Samaritans uh, uh, like AA? It's different. So, uh, so Samaritans is a suicide prevention hotline uh, that okay. people can call either relatives or people who have questions or people who feel that perhaps uh, they have suicide thoughts, they can call it. And when I teamed up with them in 2019, it was the first year of suicide attempts being decriminalized in Singapore. So until then, you yeah, you told me that. It, you, know? you told me that. I, I just, 
Can you can you talk about that a few seconds? I that's still hard for me to imagine. Yeah. So until then, you couldn't report uh, perhaps if you had a child or a, hmm. a, a family member who attempted a suicide, then uh, that would be considered a crime. So that's why we couldn't speak about it uh, uh, until 2019. So that's when I and I only found this out because hmm. also it was quiet in the media. So it was only when Simon went. And I wanted to make noise about this. Everyone said, Nick, you cannot talk about that. It's cannot. It's it's illegal. You cannot talk about this. But then I I, I came across Samaritans and I asked them, can we talk about this? And they said, yes, this year we can. And they showed me formal, you know, press releases and every material about it. That's what I decided, okay, but no one is talking about it. So that's why I rang the bell. Uh, by starting this campaign and within 24 hours I was on live radio talking about this uh, the next week mm -hmm. I was in a four pages a feature in the biggest business publication in Singapore which still to date is the biggest mental health related media exposure in this country's history so with that I realized I was onto something I was talking about something that no one ever had done before and I was completely overwhelmed with people calling me writing to me on every single channel hmm. hey, keep going I'm suffering I just uh, lost my my daughter to to this you know I wish someone had talked about it before then we could address this so I suddenly became you know in the middle of this media storm and I was in 20 newspapers, magazines, and all radio stations in the country. Uh, and basically, that's when I thought I, I need to write a book about this because I had all these ideas and people were screaming at me, Nick, please talk more about this. What did the book reveal to you as you were writing it or when you finished it? What, what new things did you learn about this journey? How common it is that I wasn't alone, you know. And, and if we're talking right. about executives here uh, which the book is directed at uh, and as I interviewed psychologists I spoke to rehabs and so on uh, and uh, about 10% I believe of the senior executives have an addiction many of them uh, alcoholism but they're living with it mm. they're functioning alcoholics as you mentioned Jeff that I guess uh, my belief is about 10% uh, when we come then I have to think that's higher don't you yeah, might be even higher. Yeah, but the, in in problems, at least ten percent, which has problems, I would say. Hmm. Uh, other research that came out of this when I wrote the book was that you know, uh, at least thirty percent are suffering from loneliness. That was before the pandemic. During the pandemic, I went back to the group and asked them, and actually had doubled. Sixty percent said they're suffering from loneliness. Oh wow! Yeah, the. The statistics here in the States, I know specifically, I can't speak on behalf of the rest of the world, but if you look at um, almost every statistic across the board with mental health, almost any generation, whether it's the millennials or the baby boomers, um, there seems to be really a pattern and that pattern is not good. <laughs> uh, despair, you know, deaths of despair, they call it. In the United States, Nick, uh, when I was going around the tour this summer in our RV on our Living Undeterred U.S. tour, I was quoting 800 Americans a day die from suicide, alcohol, and overdose, okay? I've just been told by somebody that now it's 822 a day. So just since this summer, you know, just a few months ago, now the statistic is 822 a day. And when my son overdosed, our son overdosed in 2016, I think there was 44,000 Americans had uh, died from drug overdose. Last year was 108,000. So 
you know, whether you, whether it's alcohol, suicidal ideation, anxiety, depression, um, it just seems like we are missing something as a society. Like we've, we've missed an opportunity somewhere along the way. Uh, I'm 56 years old. Um, I'm not sure your age, but our generation is full of many individuals that are just unsatisfied with their life. They look backwards. They think I should have made more money. I should have had a happier marriage. I should have picked a better spouse. Uh, I should have been better to my kids. Why do you think we play this game so much with ourselves where we just seem like we're never satisfied and then we run to things like drugs and alcohol to fill those voids? Yeah, I think it's the way the society is up and that it's too competitive and it is about winning. Uh, number two is the first loser. That's somehow the way it's built up. And once you get a taste of that, then people like I did take advantage of it. We find a formula, we find a way and nothing can stand in your way. You push everything away just to get that. And once you have received something like that, it becomes addicted as well. And that feeling and the power that comes with it and all the perks then and the, and, the, and the money, the expense accounts and so on. Once you get used to that, then the ego kicks in and we defend it with our life. Uh, so that's why I think, you know, we, we have people in society and I was there and I thought that was the way and I thought I was living the good life and I had a good time. But, you know, it, it, you're running at full speed. And with so much drugs and alcohol in your life that you never have a time to stop and reflect. I, I couldn't meditate. I did not pray. I never slowed down. I didn't take a look mm. internally uh, how I was really think, uh, feeling and thinking. And, you know, and, and I think if you're going fast forward through your life like that and you don't stop and you don't reflect, then uh, it's very hard to realize what's going on until something happens. And, and that is... What tend to happen when we are 40, I'm 47 years old myself. And mm. it is many times when people are in the 40s or in the 50s yeah. when the wheels are falling off. Yeah, I was 52 when I quit. So um, talk about recovery for a second. Everyone's got a different, different definition of what recovery is. And it's a very unique journey. It's very personal. I always tell people whatever work, whatever is working for you is the right way. And what do you have to tell someone right now that is in the early stages of recovery? Maybe just they're sober a week, maybe two weeks. What, what things can you tell them to either expect on this journey or words of encouragement you can give them? Well, I think I was told a few things in early recovery. The first was, was uh, the, the classic, just keep coming back. And they said, basically, just listen just listen and that's what i did the first three months i didn't say much but i kept coming back every day i kept coming back making it a daily uh, daily thing so instead of going down to the supermarket to buy my beers at 7 a.m in the morning uh, and walking around by myself drinking them to stabilize myself i spent that you know one or two hours in the morning going for a walk going to a meeting with others who were in recovery and just listening. So I think that was, you know, my first 90 days and many are recommended to make it the habit the first 90 days. And that is really the foundation because that 90 days, new seeds started to be planted. I started to listen, I started to understand. And those 90 days I broke free from the drugs, the alcohol, 
and stepping out my exercise. And I call it in my book, the natural happy pill. So the recovery meetings mm. combined with getting exercise, getting back into physical and mental health again, that is, and I started to get such a positive vibe. I started to get taste of life. And I started for the first time in my life, feel that, ah, so this is what life is about. And, you know, you, you went on the extreme end with the exercise because you pretty much turned into a, a world-class athlete. You know, a lot of people go to like myself, I'll run on my elliptical for, you know, five, six, seven miles. And that's, that's world-class training for Jeff Johnston. But you take it to an extreme. I mean, even today, I think you said you're going on like a seven mile swim after this podcast. If you added up all my swimming in my lifetime, it's not seven miles. <laughs> um, what's the attraction to being an extreme athlete? I mean, what's is it, is it that dopamine rush? Uh, just the the same that alcohol gave us back when we were drinking. Now you got the same high from running or, or swimming or whatever you're doing, biking. Yeah. So in about six, seven years before I came, I crashed and into recovery. I I started to do marathons, and I was already on that journey. And as I said before, in one of the races, I almost drowned. So once I was into recovery, I realized that sport was much more enjoyable. You never before it was perhaps to sweat out the alcohol or the hangover. Now, yeah. now you could start fresh. And uh, I really, really became fascinated with it. And I realized, you know, now I don't have to worry about the, the, the calories and everything. I became leaner, I could perform better. And the whole everything around sports but also the nutrition and so on and then the the community around it i would say was the number one is the community so when i'm an yeah. i'm an introvert and i need that kind of community now i didn't have the bar stools anymore i didn't have my dot club i didn't have my snooker club i didn't have all these uh, clubs and societies that involved alcohol i needed to make sure that i didn't only have my recovery group but i had a life outside yeah. that with normal people and that I yeah. found in sport. So, and then why triathlon? Well, because it's swimming, cycling, and running. So that means that I belong to a swim academy where I'm going after this. Yeah. <laughs> I have my swim academy, and the introvert I am, I feel at home there. I feel comfortable with around that. Then I have my different cycling groups. I have for my work. We have a, the peer group. We have a cycling group every Sunday. Uh, we cycle and drink coffee. Saturday I have another cycle group where I have my friends, and we are speaking there. But then I have running clubs and running groups, plus my wife is running so we can travel the world and sign up mm. for some marathons and so on. So uh, it is the sports side of it, how I feel, but it's also now my life. It's my community. It's where I feel at home and I can be of service for others because also, as you will realize in many athletes who go to the extreme, especially the Ironman events I do, many have uh, drug and alcohol addictions in there. And they all know that I'm in recovery. Right. So I also can help many of the athletes, including pro athletes who I'm mentoring and coaching on uh, in, about addiction and recovery. Do you, do you adhere to a pretty strict diet too? Yes, I, I find uh, nutrition fascinating. I uh, Most of the things I read is about nutrition. I just started this year to try uh, plant-based uh, and I did yeah. fully plant-based one month before my last Ironman event and I did a big big personal best well so you, you think the plant-based has some some weight to it yeah I'm not sure if it's uh, for all year around I think uh, it, it, at, as of now I don't have any race coming up for a few months so uh, I'm 
having sometimes uh, meat but uh, i I'm, i don't keep meat at home anymore everything i have is that's why i call myself plant-based but if i want to have uh, a steak once a quarter or a pizza with salami uh, from time mm -hmm. to time i still have that yeah i weighed about 190 pounds um and then when i quit i got down to about a, well yesterday i was 153 which you know my high school senior weight was 155. So I'm pretty much what I weigh when I was a senior in high school and I'm 56 years old. And I tell you, having that extra weight off of your body, you know, it's one thing psychologically when you can put on a, a pair of pants that, you know, you probably could fit in back when you were in high school. And most of my friends at my age, you know, they can't do that. And I have to say a lot of it's just because of the, well, the drinking that I lost weight quickly I, I would advise anybody that wants to lose weight if you're drinking alcohol just quit drinking for a while you will lose weight guaranteed all the things that came with it the late night binge eating in the refrigerator you know the crappy meals in the morning you know and you know i try to do a little bit of i call vegan light where maybe three four days a week i eat fairly you know lots of fruits you know um some vegetables you know i do the the oatmeal unsweetened, I drink the almond milk, you know, um, maybe a salad for dinner. And then I'll sprinkle in a steak, like you said, you know, or some chicken or something. I eat a lot of fish as well. But, you know, once you get your body kind of used to that and you don't have a steak very often, when you finally have one, it's like your body doesn't really like it anymore, you know? Yeah. I, I feel like that as well and especially around exercise and so on and what I do now is that I actually I have a steak after my races if I have a marathon or an Ironman event then I'm looking forward to that and afterwards I, I have that before it used to be that I would drink alcohol and party now at least I have a steak now and I feel I deserved it you're burning it off anyway and, 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 it, and it's a lot of protein which you need after the race so it might have its place for it and you're also craving something by then so it's all good and i'm just like you jeff i'm 160 pound now uh, which there's no way i would hit that before when you're drinking no it's just it's so difficult to you know again if you look at the downside of alcohol and they you know people could say well a glass of wine whatever isn't going to kill you and that may be true but the downside is so more than whatever upside and the upside was so temporary it was so fleeting that you know the buzz you get the, the confidence you get when you drink maybe the the lack of when you're in a group of a bunch of people maybe you don't get as nervous when you're drinking but those little benefits just are far outweighed by all the other stuff that comes with with drinking alcohol and so even though i don't call myself sober because that there's an implication that i'm in like a, a fight with alcohol because I think I've won. I, I just don't drink. I, to me, I really tried to keep this simple, Nick, uh, and not overthink this. I think as humans, we have a tendency to really overanalyze. For example, and I don't know if you feel this way too, but if, if I had a glass of wine tonight, okay, first of all, it'd be my first drink in almost five years. I wouldn't beat myself up. I wouldn't torture myself. I wouldn't think I let myself down and let everybody, I would just think today I had a drink, you know, and, and then I would go back and hopefully not drink for a long time again. But I think a lot of people that have a normal hiccup, they, they fall off the wagon. They just get so 
torturous to themselves. I, I saw someone on LinkedIn that I've been following where she fell off the wagon and she's been a very adamant proponent of sobriety. And she just punished herself publicly, you know, just, you know, let myself down, let my followers down. Everything. I'm like, no, you didn't. You just drank for a day. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I guess to me, being a pragmatic person has been a benefit in, in this, you know, not drinking um, lifestyle for me. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? If, if, if you did happen to have a drink, would you really feel like you let down the world and let yourself down? Or would you just say, no, I just made a poor decision. I'm back. I'm back not drinking, you know. How would you approach that? Yeah, I would be just like you, Jeff. And it's very rare indeed. Yeah. And, uh, because I post, uh, I don't post which organizations I belong to because they're anonymous and so on. But I'm very, very open with that I'm in recovery. I'm open with since the time I had since my last drink. Everyone or many in the recovery group say that, Nick, don't post that on social media. Imagine if you if you have a slip and then people will come. Right. To but I said I will be completely human about it also. I would be the first to post yeah. uh, that this happened. Now let's just work. Mm -hmm. And I think the, the danger if you are hiding it everywhere is that then uh, you, you, you might not come back into recovery again because no one will know. But if because I'm so open with it and if I'm saying that I slipped, then the whole world would also be there to support me, to get me back on the right path again. I mean, what's wrong with just being human? I, I just don't understand the stigmas with some of these things. And that's the problem when you when you perpetuate these secrets and we don't talk about these things, these stigmas just continue. They just continue. And someone like you or me or all the other people out there that are very comfortable with, you know, talking about their faults. I mean, I was a financial advisor, man and a compulsive gambler at the same time. I mean, you don't talk about that. That's a, that's a death nail in your advisory coffin. Um, and you know, I still am licensed. I still have clients and I wrote a book two years ago talking about my compulsive gambling. And you know what? N nothing bad happened from that. Nothing. Um, and again, I'm not, I'm not telling people to go out and admit all your faults publicly, but I felt it was important. For people to see that I had one perception in the public and then behind that, you know, curtain or that wall, there was another reality. And isn't that the way we all live? Yeah. And I think this is something I had a problem with, uh, uh, Jeff, in my early recovery, because one of the groups I belong to has the word anonymity or anonymous in it. And, you know, I thought, why is it like that? That's the whole problem with this. Can we remove this word? And can we all just be proud of going here? Uh, can we not just mm. call it, you know, uh, a recovery or something positive instead? And we need to, rem in order to remove the stigma, we need to remove this anonymous word. Uh, and people didn't understand me, and I decided not to talk more about it there. But that is an issue. As long as something we are asked to keep it secret and silent and anonymous, it will be stigma. And we need to get out mm -hmm. like you and I do, Jeff, but we are very rare of the people in recovery. There's mm -hmm. very few people I think who have your and my mindset. I, I do. Uh, again, I'm sure as you go out and meet new people, like I just met you this month, um, there's a subset of people that I don't think could ever have a conversation like this um, for, for a, a lot of reasons, shame, guilt, um, you know, feel like they're, they're letting people down. 
And I'm all about trying to change the direction of how we look at these things. And if we continue to keep doing what we're doing and expect the results to get better, isn't that the definition of insanity, they say, doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results? So as a society, if we see everything getting worse, in other words, people's well-being and their happiness and their health. I mean, America is a great example, Nick. Geez, we're, I think, 65% of our country is obese. I mean, just think of the added stress that puts on everything for that person just being just being 15 pounds overweight. I'm not talking about 100 pounds overweight. I'm talking just 15, 20, 30 pounds overweight can add a tremendous amount of stress. And if the statistics are right, like 85% of health issues late in life, and I'm talking not like in your 90s, but like you and me, our, our age, is related to our diet and exercise. I mean, we know that. But United States is 65% overweight, so, or, or, uh, overweight, obese. So it's like, someone's got to give. <laughs> I mean, we're at a tipping point, especially in our country, with mental health and, 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 and weight and uh, all these things. And uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm worried for the younger generations, especially Generation Z coming up. There's like the nine-year-olds to about 24. That's a real sensitive generation in the United States. I don't know what it's like in Singapore or in other countries, but... I know it's a big deal here. Yeah, no, I, I certainly see that, Jeff. And I think uh, it's sad that people have to go to lose everything around us. Like, uh, sadly, you lost then your son and your wife to this. And because you, you, you probably felt like how I felt when I realized I almost died and I lost my friend Simon to this. I have nothing to lose. I can be completely mm. open. I'm naked here. I have everything to win mm. because once you lost it all, you can only win. And, you know, People will probably realize this when they're on the deathbed themselves. So one time in their life when they're 70, 80 or 90 years old, maybe people will not live to 90 anymore if, if they are that obese. But uh, uh, I mean, that's the point when they realize that. But you and me have been given a gift here, Jeff. We are still alive and hopefully some years to go where we can actually educate our society around us on this and that let's go of the stigma and let's not be anonymous and let's be more vulnerable more transparent and and share how we are feeling and support each other rather than hiding what i call in my book behind this smiling depression or this facade of uh, of of you know covering up for what it is but as you say if you're obese it's hard to cover up it's right there and it means that something mm -hmm. is wrong we were not obese 100 years ago were we no, and you know, in our country, if you start talking about this, they, they they cancel you for fat shaming and you get criticized about, you know, talking down. And it's like, that's not what this is about. I mean, it's not, I think somebody's just completely missing the topic. If you go back and just look at pictures of Americans on the beaches in the 1970s and the 60s, and then look at today, you know, I don't have to say anything. It's like, you just, the, the, the size of people are much larger. And with that comes a lot of health issues, a lot of challenges. You're, you're not going to be 50 pounds overweight for 30 years and, 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 and increase your chances of, of not having problems. More than likely, it's the other way around. You increase your chances of having problems. And again, I'm not, I, you know, anybody watching this, I hope they don't get, you know, upset. But then again, if we're going to change stigmas, maybe we need to upset some people. Maybe that's just... Um, you, you always have a right to be to be hurt. You always have a right to be defensive, um, you know, uh, or defend a position. But the stats don't lie. Statistics don't have feelings. You know, I think someone once says facts don't have feelings. And it's like 
for me, I can tell you right now, man, being 40 pounds lighter has just meant the world to me. I sleep better. When I do exercise, I, I feel better. Um, I just, um, I don't know. I just think, uh, I think there's a lot of, it's like dominoes. It's like once you quit drinking, boom, 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 all these good things start happening. And recovery, I think you would agree with this, Nick, is a process. It's not, it's not an event. Absolutely. I agree. There's not one day. Mm. I agree. And uh, I'm about 65 pounds lighter now than when I came into the, mm. the recovery. And you're tall, right? I mean, what are you, how tall are you? Like six, four or something? Or? Yes, almost. Yeah. So, uh, okay. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, it, and I agree, we need to talk about things. It's not about, uh, you know, taboo, or it's not about bullying someone. It is about exposing issues. And we need to talk about them. And it doesn't matter if uh, overeating is an addiction in itself. And there's many organizations for that. And it's all as you say, it's all linked and integrated. And we, we need to talk about these issues. And we need to help each other to go through it. Because at the other end, we have uh, many companies, you know, doing marketing tricks on people, beautiful campaigns and everything to uh, make mm -hmm. us fall into the gap, even for alcohol advertising, which is still legal in some countries. There's also mm -hmm. all these ads for sugary drinks and food. So, I mean, we are victims of this and we can only together, I think, uh, once we accept that, uh, help together to, to address it. And uh, as you say, it's all interlinked and we, we, let's sort this out. Yeah, and there, there is a, a, a percentage of the human population that just were born with, you know, the inability to, to lose weight. Uh, it's very difficult for them, and maybe they don't eat that much, but they still have it. It's in their, kind of in their genes, as they say. Um, and, and by no means, any comments I make are directed at anybody that, you know, has this genetic predisposition, because it's pretty clear that that is, that is a fact. Um, I know for me, one thing that helped me a lot, too, Nick, was taking sugar, uh, cutting sugar out. Now, I love donuts. I like, I like sugary things. I like candy bars. I'm, it's not that I don't like them, but what I try to do when I go to the store is limit things that with sugar that I buy. Cause if it's not my house, I can't, I can't have it. And I think that's one of the problems is that people say, well, I need to cut my sugar out. And you just go into their house and you look around their kitchen. You're like, there's everywhere you look, there's sugar. And it's no different than an alcoholic saying, well, I don't want to drink, but then they have beer in their refrigerator. You know, it's just that it takes one second of loss of discipline and all of a sudden, boom, you know, you're, you're eating that candy bar, or you're having that beer. And, um, you know, again, it's a combination of many, many things. And for example, I was going to ask you earlier and I forgot, um, do you meditate? Yeah, it's a big part of the recovery, right? Me too. Yeah. Me too. And I had to, you know, and I, during the pandemic, I wanted to become better at meditating. That was one thing I did because I wrote my book then and I thought I needed some more breaks and pauses to go deeper in myself when I did that. And I signed up for, with a temple uh, here in Singapore that had meditation classes mm -hmm. and uh, it was oh, great. absolutely wonderful. So it started in person, but then with the lockdowns, it went online. So I did it uh, uh, and I continued. And uh, now my son will come to his 13 years of age. He feel a bit stressed at school. Uh, his mom, my ex-wife then told me, and I plan to take him when he's here in Singapore to this temple and, and see if he likes the, the meditation classes. I'm sure he will find it a quite unique experience coming from the cold Sweden here to hot tropic Singapore and going to a temple and listen to a monk uh, trying to tell us 
how to meditate. See, that would be so awesome. That would be so awesome. I, I'd love to do my meditation is just like uh, 20 minutes on a guided meditation app. Um, but I, I would love to at some point have an experience like that, whether it's a retreat. Uh, I am going on a retreat in February, uh, like a four day retreat. Um, I won't disclose too much of what will be going on at the retreat. I'm trying to report on it later. Um, something I've never done before Fantastic. and, uh, I'm doing it for, I'm doing it for mental, mental wellness. I'm doing it for exploring the conscious mind. You know, I'm doing it to kind of broaden my horizons, all these things. And I'm excited. I'm nervous, but I'm not going to say anything until after it's over. And then I'm going to make a report on LinkedIn, kind of my experience and kind of what happened. And, um, because I'm very intrigued in improving, um, my lived experience, you know, I, I'm, I'm really curious on, on my relationships getting better, even, you know, my relationships with myself, you know, a deeper meaning and purpose of why I do what I do and not just go through the motions and then, and then die, you know, um, but really feel like I'm connected to, to the universe, connected to other people, connected to trees and plants and the wildlife. And I kind of feel that way. I, I think I'm spiritual, but I think there's another level for me to go, you know, I think there's another level we all can go. I think you are right, Jeff. And in my book, I actually have a chapter on meditation and I interviewed people. And that's why also I, I went through that experience myself and I'm sharing about that. And two of the executives I interviewed had gone to the 10 days uh, silent uh, meditation retreat. Mm. And they both shared that it was life transformational for them. Uh, they both mm -hmm. had done it when they were close to burnout in their careers. They came back as mm. different people. One of them mm -hmm. who didn't have, uh, and it's 10 years ago since one of them went on his retreat, he didn't have an alcohol issue as per se. He never thought to himself that he would swore off alcohol. Uh, but since he came back 10 years ago, he never had a drink. He had never raised mm. his voice, which he used to do, especially to his mother. His uh, wife says that when you spoke to your mom, you were always getting stressed and you were raising your voice. You never do that anymore. He's come back as a complete transformed person after that 10 days retreat. The other gentleman who went, uh, it, it was also life transformational for him. He changed his career afterwards. He has gone back to a second time to do this 10 days retreat. So that's on my bucket list as well. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. As you get older, you just keep trying to think of other things to ratchet up your life experience, you know, to add value. And um, I think the, the misconception is that we need to add things to add value. So I need to I need to go on this vacation somewhere or I need to go buy this car. Or I need to get a new wardrobe or get another pet. You know, we just keep adding things. And I think in reality, especially for me, I've been I've been simplifying my life. So the house I live in currently is half the size of what it was back when I was chasing. You know, I was a capitalist and chasing money and living that life. Um, you know, I tried to cut down a lot of things that I own. I used to have a condo in Florida, sold that, you know? Um, and I'll tell you what, getting a little bit simpler in my life at, at 56, less things I have to stress about, less things I have to manage. Uh, I think there's something about addition by subtraction. You know, you add more to your life by taking things away or letting things go, you know, uh, that's helped me a lot in my mid fifties. And I don't know if that's something you've consider doing or you've already done. But I think for anyone watching this podcast, 
you don't have to add things to your life to have a better lived experience. I completely agree with you. And uh, that's a big part of my journey as well. Uh, being an expat living far away, you know, you definitely don't want things, uh, too many things, because if you are moving place or moving country, even it then costs a bomb every time. So I cleaned up my life a few times and I, I'm doing it basically once a year. I'm going over and the beautiful thing with living here in Asia is you have poor countries next door. You can actually, you know, pack your box and donate things, uh, including clothes and shoes and but also belongings and mm -hmm. so on. And I try to do that every year and yeah, living a bit lighter, it just makes you feel better. Well, I know I'm the only thing between you and a seven mile swim. So <laughs> I'm going to let you get, I'm going to let you get going. I know you just can't wait to get to the pool. Um, how do people reach you? How do people follow you? How can people get your book? I am going to finish your book probably in the next 30 days. It takes me quite a while to read a book. With attention deficit, if I can get a chapter done every other week, that's great. Um, and uh, I'm really looking forward to, you know, making some comments on, on LinkedIn about your book and helping you promote what you're doing. But how, how do people reach Nick Johnson? Uh, thanks, Jeff, for reading the book and for every listener who wants to look at the book. Then it's on Amazon. It was actually when it came out a bestseller in both men's health, uh, mental health, but also in recovery and a couple of other uh, segments. So look it up on Amazon. It's called uh, Executive Loneliness. And also up on popular request by many executives that I don't have time to read. Uh, it's on Audible as well as an audiobook with a professional narrator. Uh, and if you want to look me up on, on LinkedIn, and it's Nick Johnson, N-I-C-K-J-O-N-S-S-O-N. Thank you. Well, listen, I really appreciate uh, the conversation today. I know you and I will figure out a way to collaborate down the road. Um, really enjoyed um, so far learning about your journey and your vulnerability. I know you are helping a lot of people that are going through what we went through and they can see, you know, here's two average dudes out here that have changed their life, you know, after being on, in the abyss you know, and have put themselves in a good place. But we still work hard at it daily. That's what people have to realize that you and I, you know, we have to keep our eye on the ball. We have to stay disciplined. We have to, you know, uh, have goals and objectives, uh, all the things that, that are that defines recovery, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's a daily work. And Jeff, when I came into recovery and once I started be, you know, getting better, they said you have to give back the gift to keep it. So that's what we have to do every day. Be there to others as well, right? Well, you impacted my life, my friend. So uh, very much uh, appreciate you being on the Living on a Tour podcast. And um, I'm looking forward to sharing the story with uh, with people around the country. Thank you very much for having me.